Okay, here we go. Girl to girl, bung them time. We have five minutes in. Cut. And hi. Hi. This is a uh, podcast for. Just kidding. What? Um, <laughs> I'm Jason Black. Wait, what's the podcast called? I, I'm hosting. I get to do however order I want. I'm Jason Black. I'm Nick Westray. And this is For the Girls. For the Girls is a Diva Stan podcast in which we talk, talk, talk about podcasts and divas. And I'm with my best friend, Nick Westray. Again, I'm Jason Black. Um, and who is this podcast for, Nick? Um, this is a podcast for alcoholic Catholics. This is a podcast for then two drinks a day. This is a podcast for ladies who still wear a hat. Uh, this is a this is a podcast for English muffins. <laughs> this is a podcast for Mimi Paragons. And this is a podcast for my best friend. Oh, <laughs> babe, why did you, you're like you're you're determined. You're like I'm going to make him cry as much on this <laughs> as I cried on Alfre Woodard. <laughs> You manipulative little hoe. <laughs> well, well, well. We 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 can't all be. We can all embarrass ourselves, can we? Um, <laughs> hi, babe. Hi, babe. How are you? How's your week? <laughs> I'm I'm good. I'm off the hot seat, so I'm I'm sitting pretty over here. <laughs> it's time for you to make the fool of yourselves. Oh no. Um, who's our diva this week? <laughs> you tell me, bitch. It's not mine. Our diva this week is one of my Mount Rushmore divas, one of the inspirations to me in life um, for about, I would say about 20 years now. And uh, that's Elaine Stritch. Mm, mm, Stritchy mm, herself. Miss Stritchy. We, yeah. So I did Alfre Woodard and, and bumbled and weeped my way through that episode. That was my D. That was the one that Nick was like, okay, you're... You're in position. You're on first base, and now right. you have to do a home run on this. And I was like, "Fuck you, fuck no, I don't want to." I'm very nervous about this. I'm still not quite sure how I feel about that episode. It's, it was an amazing episode. Everyone I, loved it. It was an episode, so it was technically an episode. <laughs> I was trying to figure out my way in with with that episode, and I kind of came up with that I worship her film career, and I wanted to pick out five films that we could just kind of fawn over and love and talk right. about her work in and, and that was so that was kind of my way into this into the structure of that episode not not so much like an autobiography but just kind of uh, what her work means and kind of what it means to my what it meant to my childhood and then we knew and we knew in the books we had it in the books and then you were going to <laughs> in the burn book we had the written it book. down in the book in the so book it of was the beast. written and we so had it written was it written. In, the, in the book of the beast with our blood we had written for the day <laughs> to start the fall with Elaine Stritch and I could tell you were in the same place that I was and I in my mind um, when I would be talking to Nick that Nick would have like that kind of um, psychopathic wall, you know, where the detective is trying to find the killer, <laughs> yeah. but then the detective becomes the killer and it's just like post-its and strings and, and string. you're like, yeah, it's like, it's like, uh, it's just pictures of martinis and Manhattan and Sardis <laughs> and strings tying them together. But, um, I, but you were getting yeah. the feelings, you were getting the, you were getting the gooseys, the feelings, the, how am I going to honor this woman? Yeah. That means that's, so much to me. 
Yes, yes. And it's, uh, and she, there are lots of people who hold her um, very high or very dear in this business. And she's someone who I get a little proprietary about in terms of talking about my love for her. Because everyone, uh, when you tell people you love Elaine Stritch and you work in the theater in New York, everyone immediately has a story about something awful she did to them. (laughs) And they tell you like right away. And it's something I hate. (laughs) It's something I truly, truly hate because I don't care who she was mean to. I get that she was a fucking bitch. I just love her as an artist so much that I kind of can be a little shy about talking about my love for Elaine Stritch because she is, and rightfully so, all of the New York theater feels like she's theirs because she was kind, she's kind of the mascot of the actor in a way. She kind of um, embodies the spirit of what it means to, um, oh, um, to work in the theater. And to be a theater artist, she kind of is the great spirit of that person. You know, she personifies what it takes to get the job done. And so everyone feels like uh, she's theirs, you know. And I've never seen someone die with more fanfare from our community, like every step of the way, every farewell concert or appearance, and then her move to Michigan at the end. And then they would enter the times would go to interview her in Michigan. They would just, we were really counting down the clock as Elaine expired. And it was intense. Uh, Sherry Jones says that she uh, was the, con- uh, the connective tissue from a lost time of Broadway, that she was, she was our ambassador from that time. Do you know what I mean? And that, and that, and then, and that's what yeah. we had. Yeah, she was literally still here, you know, (laughs) from all of these generations from that great generation where method acting started, you know, with Brando. I mean, she studied at the New School for Social Research under Erwin Prescotter and um, Lee Strasberg with people like Harry Belafonte and um, Marlon Brando and even B. Arthur was in her class there. They were in the same class together. And she was kind of the last one left of that generation. You know, I, I called you yesterday and I was like, hey, bitch, I want you to watch this thing called um, Following Elaine, in which she's just a monster to her gay assistant. And you kind of went off uh, like you did <laughs> at the beginning, like, stop, I don't care. And then I watched uh, Shoot Me and I wrote, and now I'm going to get teary because I wrote and I realized why I loved it. I loved that kind of behind the scenes so much is because you know who she reminds me of? Who? My grandma your Anne. My oh, grandma your grandma Anne, Annie. Who, who passed away this year. My grandma Annie. Yeah was she could look at you and read you for filth in a second. Mm-hmm. In a second. She, and, and then at the same time, but then you uh, you love her at the same time because it's so honest. It is so fucking funny. Like, it's mm-hmm. just, you can't... You, and for me, what I really... I, to me, they're not mean stories. To me, they're just audacious and interesting and alive people. You so rarely get that with everyone. So many people are just so tepid and so um, polite. And when yes. you get a broad, a true fucking broad like that, mm-hmm. a woman that's that will just look at a man and stare them down and break them. Hallelujah for me. That is my that is my Mount Rushmore. And I would just I instantly wrote down that's my connection. It's my grandma Anne. It's this boss woman who is so in control, you know, uh, mm-hmm. 
of the moment and and we'll just and we'll send a hundred plates back until they get it right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And who just doesn't suffer fools. No. You know? No. And that's and that's part of that generation. And um she yes, she is definitely the um penultimate of that. And you know they um when she first started out, they always wanted her to change her name from Elaine Stretch because and people would talk to her and they would say, What does it rhyme with? Itch witch bitch all of these things it was like this um it would they were like it's grating it's great they would you know they were trying to convince her to soften to soften those edges and she was like no and her voice is grating that's a part of it she's like this broken trombone that someone found and put in the center of the orchestra you know and it's the most interesting instrument yes that's the thing yes it's, it's the an thing amazing... that you want to pay attention to. You want to pay it's attention to that broken trombone. Okay, yeah. well, listen, listen, this, listen, kids. So this is how we're doing it this today. Uh, <laughs> I'm hosting. I'm the hostess with the mostest. That's how we decided to get into this episode. Uh, that's right. I'm alone. <laughs> You're always the get, hostess with the mostest. I get you. I get your reign supreme, and I'm interviewing my best friend. And so it's so it's 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 my ball game, babies. So okay, and this is this is our beginning. So so I have to ask them, you know, my most my two most important questions. I can't start any interview. I can't start anything without asking my two most important questions. And so first off, your name is Nick Westerate. Is that correct? <laughs> that is correct. Okay. Yes. My, so my first question, Nick Westerate, is: Are you gay? <laughs> I am gay. Are you cute? I am also cute. Yes. Are you gay? Are you cute? Literally the questions I could be like, hey, so I was at Walgreens and there was this guy checking me out and Jason would be like, hold on. Was he gay? I'm like, I don't know. I'd be like, was he cute? And no matter what, was he cute? And sometimes Nick will follow up with, yeah, but he's married to a husband. And I, 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 I don't even care about that. I don't even care about any follow-up, anything else about no. the person. It's no. just those two questions, yes or no, and then we move on. I don't – nothing else. Nothing else. Absolutely. I don't, I'm not looking to marry him. I just have – I'm cute and gay. Cute and gay. Good, good, good. Okay. So that's all I have. Um, those are the two things I wrote down. I think that's pretty good and journalistic. I'm really glad you're hosting this week. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. By myself, solo. Let's start from the beginning, as we always do. Take us back. Why Elaine? So it goes um, Bet and then Elaine, huh? Is that how you I would mean, see Bet Whitney, I, Elaine. Bet Whitney, Elaine, something. I mean, but it's different. It's like um, Elaine is my the my number one theater diva. Yes. You know, Bet's my number one diva. Whitney's my number one pop diva. And Elaine's my number one theater diva. Um, Origins is back to that concert that we talk about all the time. My favorite Broadway, The Leading Ladies, which is where I saw Elaine first do her, what we would call, for everyone who doesn't know who Elaine Stritch is, her signature number is a song called The Ladies Who Lunch from the 1970 musical Company by Stephen Sondheim. Greatest and song of all time. It's amazing. And it's, it's the penultimate 11 o'clock number. Uh, Company is this musical about a bachelor named Bobby whose married friends all come over for a party. And Elaine played Joanne, a kind of suff uh, suffered no fools, um, hard as nails, married woman who um, has been known in her day to lift a few. 
and uh, she <laughs> sings this song, which is the 11 o'clock number in the show. And um, Elaine sang it for the rest of her career. And it's a real Broadway diva show-stopping. Here's to the ladies who lunch. Everybody laughed. Lounging in their caftans and planning a brunch. On their own behalf. Off to the gym, then to a fitting, claiming they're fat. And looking grim, cause they've been sitting, choosing a hat. Does anyone still wear a hat? I'll drink to that. Here's to the girls. Stay smart. So I saw that in um, on my favorite Broadway, The Leading Lady. I was kind of just transfixed. At interlocking when you were in high school, right? When I was in high school and incredibly transfixed by her. And who else was on this was. on this uh, on this um, Leading um, Audra, Ladies? That Audra McDonald, Audra McDonald, Judy Kuhn, uh, D. Hody, um, uh, Patty Lupone. Um, was it? And this was like a one night thing. Yeah, it was on PBS. Okay. It was on PBS. And then they released the DVD and all the gays had the DVD. And I had a VHS copy, of course, that I had taped off of PBS. And it was also, it wasn't the first time I'd ever seen Audra. That's how we watched Les Mis. Remember your dad <laughs> taped Les Mis We taped for it us? off PBS. He had PBS. that concert and we would watch it over and over again. Um, but yeah, so that was the first time I saw her and I kind of fell in love with uh, that performance and then when I moved to New York, the first year I was living in New York was when she was doing her one woman show, which is called Elaine Stritch at Liberty, which kind of will probably be the frame for a lot of this conversation because it's her whole life story as told by her on Broadway when she was 76 years old. And uh, no, 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 sorry, sorry. The, the frame is you're gay and you're hot. Like, yeah, that's the frame. <laughs> but and the, then I'll the, decide the other stuff, the, babe. And then the matting is at liberty. <laughs> at liberty. Um, and you're gay, you're hot, you're at liberty. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, we, uh, my roommate, my first roommate in New York is our dear friend Mariah Klapach, and she went to see it and with her gay dad and told me all about it, but I did not get to see it mm-hmm. live. But then I got the DVD of it. And they showed it on HBO. So I owned, but I owned the DVD for, I think I owned the CD first and I would listen to it. And then I owned the DVD and I watched, I mean, I've seen the DVD. It's one of the few DVDs I still own and I've seen it probably 200 times. Also so crazy because watching it, it's, it's just, I mean, it's the most New York centric thing in the world. Like it's the most yes. Broadway New York centric thing in the world. And you're going to Juilliard, you mm-hmm. know, you're, you're still young and fresh mm-hmm. and, and watching it makes me be like, oh my God, Broadway's so alive and well. <laughs> and, and you just have to have a hope and some talent. So I can't imagine what, what that's like to combine that, uh, you know, 
when you first get to New York and you're just living the absolute. That's just an absolute fantasy right there. Yeah, because she and she was also from Michigan, like us. Detroit. If she's from Birmingham, Michigan, right outside of Detroit. And the other thing you should know about Elaine Stritch is that she is very open, always has been, and is very open and at liberty to being a massive alcoholic. This may come as a shock or or a surprise or both. I don't know. But um, I have. I have in my time been known to lift a few. And a lot of At Liberty is about her alcoholism. And it, I, was, I realized this in working on this this week that she's kind of the exact opposite of Bette Midler. Because Bette Midler created a whole persona to let herself walk out on stage, to mask herself. She made the Divine Miss M, which is completely different from Bette Midler. And Elaine Stritch in At Liberty walks out on stage in nothing but tights and a shirt. She's not wearing any pants. And she sits on a stool and opens up her entire soul to you. There's no one there but Elaine Stritch. She's possibly the most confessional diva we've ever had. Hmm. You know? Okay, well, I did write I did write a third question besides are you gay or are you hot? And I did <laughs> write similar questions, similarities to Bette Midler. And yes, I do agree, but... Um, there's also a documentary that we're going to be continually talking about called shoot me. It was made in, uh, it was, they started recording her in 2011 and it came out months before her death. So it's really Mm -hmm. the, the final years of her life living at the hotel. Carlisle cannot talk about a diva living in a hotel. That is my fucking fantasy. And that was her life. Elaine ever did. That was her life. I'm sorry. And she didn't wear pants. Okay. If (laughs) you want to know what I want with my life, she lived in the hotel. She lived at the Carlisle hotel, which is a famous hotel in New York that has a great cabaret space. And she all through her life struggled with making money, surviving in the theater as an actor. And she, and the end of her life when she was living in the hotel, Carlisle did concerts at their venue to pay off her hotel bill. Basically. I, I mean, kind of, it's all okay. And, and, and so during this documentary, shoot me about her say at the hotel, Carlisle, they talk about how much she needs the audience, how mm. the, her, her greatest co-star is her audience that's what makes her one woman show so amazing. And it's the vuln- it's it's the fact that she gets to be the all-time hostess and mm-hmm. show her vulnerability. And mm-hmm. that's kind of that's OG bet. Like yes. she you she has to give the energy and then she yes. gets it. And she, oh, do you love me? Do you lo- is this it? Is this enough? And then she throws it back at you. And it's this tennis match that absolutely yes. Elaine loves to play. Absolutely. Right? She- Yes. Um, she, they are both live, live performers um, in that truest sense of the word. I um, was watching an interview with her from the 90s this morning. And there's something that it's something I talk about with my therapist a lot during COVID is that Elaine literally did not feel alive if she wasn't working. She felt dead if she wasn't working. As John Barrymore used to say, an actor is either there or he's dead. That's about the only excuse that they'll believe. You're dead. So you couldn't make the matinee. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, you're there. It's live theater. 
And it's what a lot of us are feeling right now is like, there's not even the prospect of ever working again. And it, it feel it's, um, it's a horrible feeling. You know, you feel, it sounds cliche, but you feel like Tinkerbell. Like you're like, I don't know how I'm going to be able to exist if I can't stand on the stage and get the applause. And it's not just the applause, but the act of going to work. Like that's when you're alive. And that was very, very true for Elaine. And she lived, she lived that way. One of the ways that I've heard her say it is that she feels healthiest. Oh, oh. So they ask her, why do you live in a hotel? And she says, because I have nothing else to worry about, but my work. Mm -hmm. It's simple. And then it's my work. Mm -hmm. And that's my life's, that's my life's concern. Not, yeah. the, not the tinkering around of the house or the garden. It's that I, I get a place to stay. Mm -hmm. And then I get a focus only on my work. And I think that keep, kept her on whatever kind of straight and narrow that she could be on, whether it was two drinks a day or one drink a day, which she did in the later of her life. Because mm -hmm. if you watch Liberty, she's, she's stone cold sober. And then if you watch Shoot Me, she's back to carrying around just a little bottle of her gin. Cosmo, she would have a Cosmo and a water bottle that she would take with her everywhere. Um, this is who I want to be. <laughs> she... <laughs> I mean, she tells a great story in At Liberty about drinking and how everyone used to drink before going out on stage. And she tells that story where George Goble, standing in the wings with a drink in his hand before a performance, he turns to his buddy standing next to him, who's about ready to go on. Hey, buddy, where's your drink? No more, George, I quit. You quit? You quit, Jesus Christ. You mean you're going out there alone? <laughs> Out here alone, not me. No, not on your tintype. I'm with you, George. I want a friend out here with me. I had to have a friend out there, and that's what she considered booze was this uh, friend to be out there. In order to be vulnerable, the, to go to that place, she had to have a drink and several drinks, and that was her whole life. In the Hotel Carlisle, she talks about how her stomach gets a little squeaky. So she has to always, always have a shot of this Italian liqueur. It's a panacea. <laughs> I know this is, but that's like a lot of people have also said that, oh, we're also referencing a lot, this great book called Still Here, The Madcap Nervy Singular Life of Elaine Stritch by Alexandra Jacobs, which I've now read twice, which is the only biography I've ever read. Talk about times. nervy. Nick was like, I'm just, I'm just, I'm going to skim it. And then I think you just were like plowing for, you can't, I know it's like, we want to get to the truth of our love, right? And I realized in the Alfred thing is, I well, I can't really use my words, so I'm just going to cry. <laughs> like, it's, um. <laughs> It's kind of hard because it's this magical thing. It's this magical tethered connection that feels very personal, but that at the same time, you know, other people have too, but you want to make it that, you know, you want to be like, well, this is why it means so much to me. And so we, we obsess and we obsess to honor these people. Well, right? And we also have a podcast where we try to articulate this stuff and we're over and over 76 again. and we should be able to do it by now. Um, but the other reason that she's so important to me, which I haven't mentioned yet, is um, Billy, my partner and I watched this together maybe after like second or third time I slept over at his apartment wow. and he had never seen her before and was just lit on fire. And then 
when he would describe me to friends of his back home in London, he would describe me as a cross between James Dean and Elaine Stritch. Oh, sexy. And that's I was like, that's sexy. the greatest thing anyone's ever said about me. That's gay. That's that's cute. That's everything. And sometimes I want. when I get when I start spinning or I get into a rage or I'm ranting about something and like pacing around the house, Billy will still go stretchy. Calm down. <laughs> He'll call me stretchy. Oh, honey. Because I can get to a little stretchy place. But yeah, that's um, that's a good place yeah. to get to though. That's a fun. That's a good. It's chaotic, <laughs> right? It's cha- it's chaotic neutral. It's chaotic. What the fuck ever the game is that you would love to play. Nick loves love that, that game. They, this this grid that where he shows personality chart where he shows it to me, and I've tr- I've said to him a hundred times. I just I my I can't wrap my brain around this personality chart. And Nick's like, it's okay, it's okay, it's not about that. And I'm like, no, why are you sending it to me? I can't. I feel like so dumb not getting it. Um, um, how was your with, first time what? watching at Liberty though? This was not my first time. I know that you have showed it to me in either in parcels or the whole thing. Right. Um, we maybe had one or two while watching it. So there could have been that. And it, but mm-hmm. this, but, um, you know, we're living in some chaotic times right now and it's like, it's suffocating. And, and obviously Nick and I get to live in a very privileged, uh, we're very, we, our lives are very privileged compared to so many people. We're, we're, we're two white cis men. Yeah. We have great, great places we get to live in. You know, we host um, the most popular podcast in the world. We're hostess with the mostest. We're gay. We're cute. But obviously, there is, the the world's suffocating, and 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 I don't I don't think you're human if you don't feel that. And I think what's been such a such an island of relief on this podcast is that we get to live in um, these divas' worlds for a week or more at a time. And we just get a kind of escape. And mm-hmm. uh, and there's something so healing about that. And there's something that's been so healing to escape in Elaine Stritch's world uh, during hmm. this time. I mean, just so magnificent. She's, this is how I would describe her for me. Uh, she is, um, she's Weeza come to life with talent. And <laughs> as you know, Weeza from Sue Magnolia's is my greatest hero of all time. And, and, and I, I love that. I, I'm, I've always loved an old broad and I don't know why I, maybe because it was yours and, and I don't know, maybe I, I was sacred for you and what, whatever reason was that I'd never touched the hem enough of this, but it's, it's just like, it's just like meeting an old friend and, and you, y'all can't, I mean, we always say YouTube, but the stories that the, there's not enough s- stories that this woman tells. I mean, I, she is a great orator of, of history and experience. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes you want to live as eccentrically and interesting as this person. I mean, truly you want to have this kind of life. And, it, and, and we talk about inspiration and this has been so inspiring to me, honey, just in an own way of art. Because again, as Nick said, like, mm. I don't know if, if these boards will ever be opened up again. I don't know if that's, I, I feel like that that's the same for me. I don't, I don't know what my performative life will look like going forward. Right. And I kind of thought, well, then fuck it all. <laughs> like, uh, fuck it. Maybe it's time to hang that up. Really, truly hang that up. And I, I'm and um, and watching this, it just makes you think, hey, anything's possible. I mean, anything is absolutely possible. Uh, yeah. So yeah, let's get into at liberty, hon. Let's okay. Start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before we start, I wanted to. Uh, That's how I wanted to. I have so many different beginnings I wanted to do, but. Um, the way Alexandra Jacobs starts her book is by quoting Nathan Lane, 
uh, who opened Elaine's funeral. She cannot remember Nathan. No, sometimes she can remember Nathan Lane's name. Sure, her inability to re- also is like one of my specialties of not being able to remember names. And then being like, who the fuck is that? Who is that? At the end, do you remember when she's trying to yeah. remember Bernadette Peters' name? Yeah. <laughs> and then she goes, keep that in here. I want her to see that. I, you cannot, I'm not even kidding. Like, ah. Uh, she I know we say this a lot, but like she is the, like one of the true originals ever in history just one of the true original personalities but she loved when she was nervous she would add the word fuck to everything which is how she bombed her golden girls audition and nathan lane opened the funeral by saying how do you solve a problem like elaine stretch how do you hold a fucking moonbeam <laughs> in your hand <laughs> and i just like that is so beautiful and it's just so quintessential it was a perfect way to open that funeral. I and know. you know that she would be, you can tell, you know that she's now telling that story in heaven. That that's what, that was her opening for her funeral. Oh, totally. <laughs> she is, totally. she is absolutely pleased as punch. That's exactly what <laughs> Miss Stretchy she, would want. And she believed in God. Elaine Stretch was religious as fuck. If you have faith, then, then you, then you're never. Alone. You got it. And you said the operative word faith. I had a line in one of the greatest songs anybody ever sung in the world in Stephen Sondheim's song, Ladies Who Lunch. Oh, unless you think there's something, I don't know what the hell it is, Charles, but something greater than this or bigger than this or more powerful than this, then I think you're in a little serious trouble and I think you ought to work on getting it. That's the other thing that's so interesting about her. She was kind of always two people at war with herself. You know, there's this... It, when you watch At Liberty, which we're going to start talking about in a second, there's this amazing mix of a jumble of nerves and insane bravado. This like little girl innocence, this little Catholic girl, and then this like hard edged worldliness, you know? Well, she She's calls like, herself the convent girl. Yeah, because when she moved to New York, she lived in a convent. <laughs> <laughs> She's like prudish and foul all at once. It's amazing. Even the outfit, like uh, this gorgeous, perfect white men's shirt on top and then no pants on the bottom. You know, there's something, she's always at war with herself. Y'all think Diane Keaton like originated this kind of New York um, top hat and a tie? No, hunties. No, no. It's it's, it's Miss Stritchie. It's seriously, that's a style icon. If you want, if you want it, that's like, that's the original. Right, right she's here. the original like waspy style icon mm-hmm. <laughs> she's like perfect waspy that. art art like waspy art like art nouveau style icon i feel like totally. with the big black totally. glasses and and then the no pants i mean it's, it's never like, pants okay well speaking of <laughs> what? this speaking of this uh her being the spirit of actors i think we both mentioned this before. The first time I cried this rewatch mm-hmm. was when she sang Stephen Sondheim's song, Broadway Baby. I'm just a Broadway baby Walking off my tired feet Pounding 42nd Street to be in a show Oh 
Broadway, baby. Learning how to sing and dance. Waiting for that one big chance to be in a show. Oh, and it's got she's has that real that innocence I was just talking about of that. It's this song is always done by an older woman in the show Follies and seeing her do it. It's just that joy, that that insane hunger and ambition that young all young performers have that all they want to do is perform. And she just flares with this innocence and this pure love of the theater that is so um, undeniable and it's so moving. I'd like to be on some marquee all twinkling lights a spark to pierce the dark from Battery Park to Washington Heights someday maybe all my dreams will be repaid heck I'd even play the maid to be in a show. I think the idea of that song is if you're just close enough to Broadway, you know that thing, if I just get there, I'll be seen. Mm-hmm. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll get it. You know, I just have to, I just have to get to New York City. Right. And, I and, and get anywhere near it. And they'll be just, and they'll just, and they'll, and, and they'll discover me and, and the hope will come true. And, and I can't say hope enough while watching this because and the, and the idea that it gives me hope that you can still create art and that, and that really there is a sense of, as Nick, as Nick always says, thinking positive, that if you, believe, <laughs> yeah, if you right. think about, if you think it enough, if you believe it enough, you can make something, you can create something. Hey, hey, Mr. Producer. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, that was me. Yes, I am. Yes, I'm talking to you, sir. Um, and you kind of have to, and I, I think I've, I've always, I always limit, I always cap off what I'm capable of. I always say that's not possible, as opposed mm. to just shooting for the stars and making a goddamn fool out of myself. And hopefully, I'll land somewhere. Maybe I'll land What's- in Ohio. I don't know. Maybe my star will shoot in goddamn Ohio, but at least I shot it. And the lane church is always right. shooting. <laughs> Well, it's just like you don't like there is this element, this engine as an actor, especially in New York. You're like, you just can't stop. You just got to keep going. You know, just keep going like that person knocked you down. Get back up. Go. You know, and that's um, it's something that Elaine really, really personifies. And embodies. And I mean, like when we say she Mm -hmm. embodies the white way, she is the white way. She is Broadway. She is the golden age. Like and then and in everything she does, that's. it's so apparent. Like you might know, not know any of that history and watching and just watching this song. All you have to do is see this song and you get it. 
you mm. get you get the struggle. You get the hope and the struggle at the same time. Broadway, baby. Making rounds all afternoon. And eating at a greasy spoon to save on my dough. Tiny flat, there's just my cat, a bed and a chair. Still, I'll stick it till I'm on a bill. All over Times Square, someday maybe. have to i mean just like showbiz stories like it's just the stories we can't even put them all in clips because it's so long i I was like can we just play this can we just i was like shoot for the children shoot for the education should we just play should this be a six hour episode six hour podcast episode (laughs) fuck the fucking ethel merman stories are so great she covered ethel merman in a musical called call me madam in the late 1950s and at the same time she was under not understudying why wouldn't they say standing by um well there's a difference between standing by and understudying i don't really understand it but there's a difference um i think the understudy has to stay in the building and the standby does not so elaine could check in with ethel merman at 7 30 and then go into pal joey by the second act because she just had one song in the second act in pal joey but then pal joey does its out of town tryout in new haven connecticut so she tells this amazing story half hour 7 30 check with merman i'm okay elaine so i'm out of there i'm out of there and i'm off to new haven in the mg with the ex-boyfriend from yale and we arrive New Haven, what, 9.45, give or take. I'm out of the car and onto the stage, singing Zip a little after 10. Perfect! The blizzard of 52 (laughs) at its peak. Opening night of Pal Joe in New Haven, but I'm not in New Haven, you see. I am in New York, checking with Ethel Merman. And it is snowing. I mean, the MG is out. Miss Merman... On account of the blizzard, I've got to take the train. Would it be okay? And the train pulls out at Penn Station at 7 p.m. Miss Merman, would it be okay if I check with you just a little bit earlier than 7.30? Oh, Elaine, will you, for Christ's sake, go to New Haven and sing the fucking song? (laughs) Okay. I'm on on the train at 7 o'clock. The train doesn't pull out till 8. Never mind. I order a double brandy and I start the first decade of my rosary. We arrive in New Haven at 12 minutes after 10. So I've had it. I've had it. I go on in Pal Joey at 10.15. I've had it. 
at one point, you just have to watch the show because I don't think we're going to be able to put it all in. But my favorite is at, she runs into a snowstorm. So she barely makes it to the theater. And what she does, she goes in and she sees her understudy standing in the wing and she says, My cue to enter. So I'm up here. My understudy standing there ready to go on in my costume. I've got on a Dior suit, a beaver fur coat and boots. I throw off the coat, I kick off the boots, and I say to my understudy with quiet, frenzied desperation, Give me your shoes! (laughs) You just give me your shoes! I wore a seven, she wore a nine and a half. Minnie Mouse in a Dior suit. And it's my favorite thing. I think about it all the time. Give me your shoes. Obviously, my favorite thing is the Judy story. Oh. Judy Garland. She said to me one night, it was her closing night at the palace. And there was a big party, a big celebration. And Judy Garland and I were still at it at 8 o'clock in the morning. When she rose to her full height in that orange sequin sheath with the slit up the side, her comeback dress, I called it. She loved that. And she put her hand out to me and she said, Elaine, I never thought I'd say this, but good night. (laughs) (laughs) At 8 a.m. and I'm just thinking, oh, to be, to... To just be in the closet, to be under the couch with these broads, just cackling. They were very close friends. They were very good friends. Um, you know, that's the last line in her obituary in the New York Times. They said, as as Judy Garland um, famously once said to Elaine, and they end the obituary with, Elaine, I never thought I would say this, but good night. God. Isn't that deep? That's deep. That, is, that is. I also love Elaine Stritch never knowing what words mean. <laughs> like what do you mean what do you mean she tells the story of like uh, me she, she's me i'm i'm taking your very, diva bitch it's very you she goes it's so much she me goes, when she sings the song zip and pal joey she has a song called zip my song i don't like a deep contralto or a man whose voice is alto zip i'm a heterosexual now i thought i wasn't quite sure but i thought And I hadn't been out of Michigan too long now, remember. But I thought heterosexual meant gay. (laughs) Here's... (laughs) I get it. I totally fucking get it. Here's how I want to hear She also tells a story of... Sorry, she also tells a story of uh, Stephen Sondheim saying... um... 1970. 1970. The musical company. The Ladies Who Lunch. A matinee, a pinter play, perhaps a piece of Mahler's. I thought Mahler's was a pastry shop on Broadway. (laughs) Mahler's Pastries, 47th Street and Broadway. The ladies had lunch, they went to see a matinee, they saw a pinter play, and afterwards they went around the corner and had a cup of tea and a piece of Mahler's. (laughs) Made perfect sense to me. And when I brought it up to Stephen Sondheim, he said, Elaine, I have to go to the bathroom. (laughs) Oh, she is so, so... So crazy. Uh, Here's how I want to hear Zip. I want to hear Zip literally on the stairway to heaven. While, I go uh, to, while I'm walking up to see him missing stretch, <laughs> while I'm going up to have, to have, um, to have my one drink. Right. Isn't that just yeah. such a thrilling song? Uh, it's so good. 
don't want to see Zarina. I don't want to meet Cabina Zip. I'm an intellectual. I don't like a deep contralto or a man whose voice is alto. Zip. I'm a heterosexual. Zip. It took intellect to master my art. Zip. Who the hell is R.G. Hart? And the way, I mean, we also have to say like so much of the genius of At Liberty, the show, it was co-written with John Lahr, the great New Yorker writer who and biographer who wrote great biographies of people like Tennessee Williams and directed by the great George C. Wolfe who used to run the public theater where the show started and who directed our favorite, one of our favorite musicals, the wild party. Can I tell you a and, quote? Can I tell you a quote? Yeah. I said to her, this is, this is going to stay with me for the rest of my life. I've been thinking about it every, every morning I wake up. Literally, this is what I think about. She's the, the thing about Elaine that a lot of people will say who really know her will say that she seems like she is a, you know, just a, you know, just a brassy ball busting kind of gal, but she's actually extremely vulnerable and concerned about what people think about her. She thinks about that all the time. Like under, under that steel cage is like, is, is, is a true, you know, kind of, and that's what makes a great artist. Right. And that's what Mm -hmm. she talks about all the time. She talks about what, how are you as a human? What do you care about? How are you to servers? How are you to your wife? Like, do you even care about the human condition? And she obviously does. And she obviously thinks about it. And that's obviously the art that she works from. But so she was so um, nervous about opening um, at Liberty. And she asked George C. Wolf, you know, she's like, what if they hate it? What if they hate me? What if the crowd turns on me? And he says, Elaine, if they run you out and if they start to run you out of town, get in front of it and act like it's a parade. Mm. <laughs> and all isn't that just delicious i mean that to me he's one of the greatest he's one of the greatest directors of all time i love him so much they're doing the beauty in the beast beat um beauty in the beast pitchforks and, and then i just run out in front and i'm acting like i'm the band leader of it even though it's for me you take this negativity and you turn it into something into and, and you own it and i i i'll tell you honey i'll never forget that I'll never forget that. And she said, she was like, that's a great line. I don't know who told him that, but I love that line. (laughs) Mm. And Elaine loves lines. That's, I love that. She, she adores a good line and she adores a good story. And she She does. She, um, it's funny though. There are so many stories in the book, in the Alexander Jacobs book that are like at Liberty, but are like the actual story. And the great thing about at Liberty is it's a great old storyteller getting to, define her own narrative at the end of her life she got to redefine her own narrative and spin every one of those stories exactly how she wanted them and it's um, if only all of us could be so lucky or so brave to do that what else is you touched on from from at liberty Oh, I mean, we tell those stories, Billy and I tell each other these stories so, so many times. But the other iconic thing is how she opens it, which one of my favorite things about Elaine is how she admits to the ups and downs of it all, of the career. She's not someone who tries to pretend like it's great. And she opens the show with, there's no business like show business. There's no people like show people. They smile. When they are low, good for them. 
Even with a turkey that you know will fold, you may be stranded out in the cold. Still, you wouldn't trade it for a sack of gold. <laughs> Try me. You have it with you? Maybe you left it in the cab. Did you leave it in the cab? <laughs> it's just, it's so, per- she's so dry and she's so simple. She's so simple. Um, just telling that joke. It's so easy, dry. She barely moves a muscle. It's a, it's a real lesson in economy of how little you can do to tell a story. Speaking of money and theater, there's a, there's a story I want to read you from this book. So it, she doesn't talk about in at Liberty is in 19, in the nineties, I think around 1994, she did a production of showboat on Broadway playing. Do you know showboat at all? Well, I know old manor river. I know that song. Right. Well, she played the captain of the showboat's wife, which is not a huge part, but they gave her some extra songs. And first they did it out of town in Canada and then like in Toronto, I think, and then they're going to move it into New York. And Elaine had been very intense about her negotiations and she was making $10,000 a week, which was much more than anyone else in the cast for a very small part. And so when moving into New York, Stritch took the change of venue as an opportunity to try for a raise. She says to her producer, uh, Mr. Dabrinsky, my darling angel, turkey, sweetie, poopy, precious, adorable, divine, attractive, gifted Ziegfeld of the 90s. What do you say <laughs> to a flat 25000 a week starting now with no increases until my contract ends in New York? In the event that I win a Tony, any or no <laughs> increase will be entirely up to you. Unless I'm offered a movie with Robert Redford, then of course, Garth, you'll just have to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> That's what she fucking wrote to him. She didn't get the raise. <laughs> she she frames she framed a letter from Woody Allen mm. in which he basically was like, I hear that you're very demanding from every director that worked with you. Um, I don't really tell actors how to act. Uh, that's not how I direct. I, so I can't really have any interruptions or questions or costume changes. If you can't do that, I understand. I will always be your biggest fan. Wow. And she framed him. He was really good to her. I mean, you know, I've still never seen September. I've seen both September and Small Town Crooks. Small Town? Town? Time? Crooks? Time. Um, Time. But I don't remember them, so there's I'm saving September. September's like, I have this weird thing with things. If If I have them, if I see them all, if there's like nothing left for me to have... I get very, um, I get very nervous about that. I hear you. I so, I know, I know. I do that with books I love sometimes. Mm-hmm. I won't read the last page just so that, hey, I still have it. Yeah, <laughs> it it's kind of like live. never over. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I didn't. It, the, yeah, it, it's kind of can live in somewhat of an infinity when I when I need it. Okay, I'm gonna give you a deep cut from her album. Okay. Okay, so we're t- you know how we were talking about how she's like a, a big brass trombone that's been left out in the rain? Mm-hmm. Stephen Sondheim, who wasn't always Her kind, biggest fan? No, to Elaine. He had said something great about her singing, though. Sondheim said, Elaine had a jazz inflection and that smoky speak song singing voice, which she did even when she was a young woman. It's not a singer's voice. It's a performer's voice. 
which is why she could do good nightclub work. She always said she was afraid of me. I mean, she made a joke of it. And there was no need, but I know exactly what it was. It was somebody who's not educated facing somebody who's educated and using his education as a writer. And I'm educated musically too, which she wasn't. She was instinctive as a musician. What she knew was songs. And there's this song, um, she only recorded one album and it was uh, on, it's called Stretch. And it was in the 60s. And she recorded a version of And the Angels Sing. And she scats in it. And it's fucking amazing. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's pause. Yes. Yes. It's like, it's, it's not, it's, it, it is musical. It's just so, so her. Right. It's so her. And, and I, I, I guess it's like in the, right. It's in the same, I'm like, who else? Ethel Merman has the brass of that where it's just, where she, yeah. where she's getting in front of the mob and being and, and being the the band leader herself, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh no, that brass that, that brass trombone in the ring just started taking the lead. <laughs> yeah, and she was like, literally, she was a successor of Merman's, you know, in a way. And I really, really wish. And you know, Elaine had a lot of anger about never doing Gypsy, and she had a lot of competition with Angela Lansbury. And Angela Lansbury beat her out for Anyone Can Whistle. And that started Angela's relationship with Sondheim. And she always felt she never got, she could never get back in. And she blamed Angela a lot. She, uh, she kind of not, not justifiably. But. She did the touring of MAME. And like, the, I think the, in 68, 69, she toured MAME. She did. She toured MAME kind of in summer stock. It's My kind friend of... Reed Bernie saw her do it when he was like 11 years old, which was really, really young. And he said he had no idea what was happening. It was one of the most terrifying things oh, he ever experienced in his life because she was just completely blotto. I mean, one of my favorite things is she she said she said um, when I was 20, I could play 40. And it's really true. She kind of yeah. looks the same age for like 500 years. Mm-hmm. Um, Have what? you seen the company doc? The oh. documentary about the making of the company album. Yeah. So not only is this Nick's um, one of Mount Rushmore's divas, but this is also, I think, us trying to shed all the light on this, an amazing, complicated person. And we were kind of trying to do that because I think the two things that I think you would be able to reference her in is one is the 30 Rock, which stay on for the Patreons. Kittens. Oh, yeah. We're gonna, yeah. We're going to do 30 Rock on Patreon. That, and so that's kind of what I that she she played Jack's mom, and um and then the other thing would be this this kind of really iconic um, documentary of the cast recording of um, the company soundtrack, which they actually parodied on documentary. Now it's so which iconic. I hate you hate that. I, hate I don't think I saw that. the whole thing. I didn't see the whole thing. Ugh. I'm not sure I've ever it. really gotten that. That it's like um, the least gay thing. It's like straight people being funny and I dislike it. <laughs> um, anyway, um, I really don't like how they try to send up Elaine in it. But in the documentary of Company, Elaine is trying to record The Ladies Who Lunch and she is 
tired and it's early in the morning and she should not put her face on and by early in the morning it's late at night (laughs) it's like two o'clock in the morning they've been there all day and she is just screaming and not singing at all and i'll never forget what tom shepherd said said out loud in that booth that hurt my feelings more than anything okay once more from the top sung please what sung do it again, Elaine, and this time just sing it. And there are these amazing moments where she gets really angry at herself, herself listening to the playback and starts screaming. Stop screaming! And then the next morning she comes in early in the morning, it's before a matinee, and lays down the track in one take, and it's the most beautiful. I mean, she has her face on and her makeup. Another chance to disapprove Another brilliant singer Another reason not to move Another vodka singer I'll drink to that So here's to the girls on the go Everybody tries Look into their eyes and you'll see what they know. Everybody dies. A ghost of that invincible bunch. The dinosaur surviving the crunch. Let's hear it for the ladies who lunch. Everybody That's one hell of a good take. And then Sondheim and all these folks tried to claim that she did that on purpose to get... To create a narrative? To create a narrative in the documentary. And they ask her about it and Elaine's like, oh yeah, sure. That's what I did. I I went out of my way to make myself look like a completely untalented ass for a large part of the documentary. Yeah, that was great fun for me. I don't think anyone could act that. That. No, no one could act that. Are you crazy? Are you kidding? No. Like when you watch like, it, it's the most raw expression of an artist trying to get the right thing, the right, mm-hmm. um, and, and and that's why it's so iconic because it's like, oh, she's close, but she's off, and they 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 and and they know, and it's like, again, she's so talented that they know what they can do, they know mm-hmm. what where they can get, which is which is so rare. For anyone, you know what I mean? People can come and sing lovely, like lovely certain ballads. And they know that they could get such specificity from her. Yeah. Well, her thought is so clear. So clear. That's why she doesn't have to move because she's thinking so precisely. She's human irony. She is like the, she's, if irony was a person, it would be her. You know, all of the all of the reviews throughout her career always talked about her wickedness and how she can turn a line, and she can make she can make very simple things extremely complicated, and that's why she's so good with Sondheim. And there's just this wit about her that is in his lyrics that makes it such a perfect perfect match. What I think, what I wrote down, what I think, what I wrote down about At Liberty 
though, is that she kind of subverts that wit into, into, into being open and vulnerable. And I wrote, I wrote, let it go. And then I wrote the Bible because that's a big <laughs> theme of, of what she's doing. You know, she's, she's talking about the opportunity she didn't get. She didn't get it. And then people are laughing with her and then she just says, let it go. You have yeah. to let it go. And yeah. it's this, it's this roller coaster that she leads you on of triumphs and these, these brassy songs. And then these funny stories that lead into her being like, I didn't, it didn't work out. I had One, to let yeah. it go. The biggest one of those for me, and this is my second cry cue when I rewatched, is when she sings uh, If Love Were All by Noel Coward. And she talks about um, the death of her husband, John Bay. Speaking of English muffins, she was married to English muffin heir, Bay's English muffin heir, John Bay. And one of Elaine's things, he died. They were married for 10 years and they lived in London for almost all 10 of them. And he died of a brain tumor at age like 54, which is terrible. Love of her life. Love of her life. And her singing If Love Were All like killed me. Oh man, sunshine, listen you. Never tell me dreams come true. Just try it. And I'll start a riot. Beatrice Fairfax, don't you dare Ever tell me he will care I'm certain It's the final curtain I never want to hear From any cheerful Pollyanna Who tells you fate Supplies a mate it's all bananas. Beautiful. But yeah, that was, that's another, and that's another composer whose wit she matched with so perfectly in her career was Noel Coward, who she was great friends with and who wrote the musical Sail Away for her, in which she plays Mimi Paragon, and which I just bought the original Broadway cast album of because it's not available on Spotify. <laughs> getting your collection, available. getting your, filling your, filling your Elaine Stritch I mean, collection. This is a as huge any... eBay queen right now. Good. Um, yes, you are. I'm proud of you. I've, I feel like I bird the monster, even though you did this all on your own. I feel like <laughs> I'm responsible for the monster you become. Um, you are. But this is an example of, you were talking about her voice not really changing. I was listening to it last night and her voice is definitely younger and sprier, but I prefer her version of this song uh, in at Liberty. Do you know the song? Remember the song? Why do the wrong people travel? Mm -hmm. She just has this break in her voice. That's so funny. And she makes her voice kind of sound like um, a whistle on a boat. And it's hilarious and so wry and so beautiful the way she delivers this song. I love it so much. Till the whole world reels to shouts and squeals and the clicking of roly flexes. She doesn't actually do that in, in the original recording. She like modulates, she jumps the note, but it doesn't like break in the same way. It's like as she got older, she used her aging. She used her voice as aging to actually, she's actually creative with it. You know, she doesn't hide from it. She kind of barrels into it. She also, I think you can know nothing about theater. Go and see Elaine Stritch and get a fucking class act education. Yes. And 
and and because not only is she vulnerable, but like in that song, she sends up singing that song. She sends up her voice. She sends up musical theater itself, and she mm-hmm. has that line which she does in all so many of her acts, where she's you know, she's like, "And I love the theater." And I do so love the theater. <laughs> and as John Barrymore once put it, and all the charming people in it and it's just it's 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 it's, it's that great thing because it's because it, it's um it's multi-dimensional and to be able to do that is obviously so hard and so to be loving and spit spit firing at the same time and mocking it at the same time is that's all that's that's her whole thing is that um yes and that's what we love about bet right that roller coaster that that experience mm-hmm. where you're laughing and then you're crying and then you're on this other str- and then it's strange and then it's a story and then it's a journey. Um, well, it's also it's also so true of all of us who work in the theater that is you love it and hate it in equal measures, almost simultaneously, almost constantly in a way that is so um, it, it takes your whole life to figure out your relationship to the theater uh, when you work in it. And I think she personifies that in kind of an incredible way. Oh, it's also ironic. The fun thing, you know, she tells that great story about the golden girls losing the golden girls. Mm, this is because she says, this is another thing that I, this is, I would say like, this is maybe her third or fourth iconic story that like, if you're, if you're a historian <laughs> of the golden girls, if you're, if, if you're a historian of these stories, this is it. A high powered casting agent by the name of Joel Thurm in New York city. Thought I'd be a shoe-in for a part in a new CBS sitcom. I flew to L.A. My agent picked me up at the Bel Air Hotel. We had a couple of beers. My quota went on the job. And we drove into Hollywood. And I auditioned in a room full of CBS hotshots. And the writer. Oh, yes, the writer. With a heavily sprayed Doris Day hairdo and an attitude. She didn't like me. On sight. And I knew it. So I tried to win her over. Thank you so much for considering me for a part in your terrific script. And it was. It was a damn good script. But I want to be up front with you. Um, at first readings, I guess it's because I'm so nervous, like everybody else, I guess. But I have this tendency, and this was true. I have this tendency to, um, when I get nervous like that, to kind of fool around with the dialogue just a little bit. Hopefully, says the writer, just the punctuation. <laughs> Well, if that's the way she was going to play it. Well, mm, maybe a little bit more than just the punctuation. Uh, For instance, here you've got the houseboy entering to set the bar up. And my line is, Ying, don't forget the hors d'oeuvres. Would it be okay if I said, Ying, don't forget the fucking hors (laughs) d'oeuvres? The CBS hotshots laughed a lot. The writer, she didn't think it was funny at all. Oh, well. Hell with it. <laughs> who cares? And who knew? You know? Well, I mean, how could I know? What I mean is, how, how could I know then? And even if I did know then, who cared? Yeah. Who really gave a shit about playing some old broad who settles in Miami with two other old broads and her mother? 
But the irony of that is the same year that she's doing Elaine Stritch at Liberty, I think across the street, B. Arthur was doing her one woman show and Elaine won the Tony and B. Arthur did not. And it was Elaine's first and only Tony award. Have you ever seen this acceptance speech? She never got the Tony award. She was nominated so many times. She didn't win for company. She didn't win for pal Joey. She didn't win for a delicate balance, which I'm going to circle back to, but she wins for at Liberty for a special theatrical event. And she gets up there and she tells everyone, she starts with like the audience is clapping too much. So she says, stop it. You're eating up my time. And she ends up going into the press room and saying, saying, fuck you on camera to the executives of CBS. <laughs> and like she had to issue a huge apology the next day and all this stuff. But it's kind of devastating. She really spent her life cert- like seeking that out. She did um, Edward Albee's A Delicate Balance in 1996, which is a performance that I really would have loved to see, playing a massive alcoholic named Claire. But she gave this interview uh, for CBS Sunday Morning where she talked about being nominated for the Tony, and she said, If I think I should win, I don't have to. I really mean that. And that's how she that talked about that, it. Yes, that means that you have reached as great as you can reach. The award, right. the award can, the award can necessarily validate validate that because you've done everything in your power to be, yeah, great. But Elaine's Elaine's um, need for need for um, validation, need for recognition, need for respect kind of fucked her that year because she demanded to be put into lead actress with Rosemary Harris, who was also in a delicate balance with her, our favorite boo from a play I took you to for your birthday once. Mm-hmm. You remember the play, the old lady. Something the in the darkness, in the... life in the darkness, yes. darkness in the bush. <laughs> and uh, also they, there was also our, they... our new horror queen was in that one, right? Yes. Carla Gugino. Um, but she lost to Zoe Caldwell for Masterclass, and people think if she was in supporting, she might have won against who? Audra McDonald for Masterclass. <sighs> Can you imagine that diva soup? Uh, you know what I would have loved to see was um, who'd afraid, who's afraid her Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf when she replaced Uda. Well, That's she didn't replace she- her. She, she played. She did the matinees. What? I thought she replaced Uda Hagen. No, she did the matinees for Uta Hagen because Uta Hagen couldn't do, no one could do it eight times a week. So they had a different cast do the matinees and Elaine was so excited for it. So she only did it three times a week and Uta did it five times a week. W- would you die? Would you decide? I mean. Uh, yes. I would She's my Martha. Die. I would say like, I didn't know this when, until we were doing, I was doing this research, but I was like, okay, that I, I, I <laughs> in my rankings, yeah. I put her as my, as my all time, this is the Martha I would have wanted. My God, that would have been insane. So the, there was a, there's a very famous story that one day she ashed her cigarette on the couch and the couch, there, a little fire started on the sofa. <laughs> oh, God. And the guy playing George said, Martha, the sofa. And she looks at the sofa at the flames. She looks at her drink that she has in her hand. She looks at George. She looks at his drink. She takes his drink, pours it on the flames downs hers and gets a full round from the audience. Oh my God. (laughs) 
she like sees a fire and knows exactly how to turn it into the perfectly timed bit. Yeah, we, I mean it's it's Canberra. I say it. She's so alive. Yeah, she's so she's... alive in 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 on in, in, in being on stage. Um, she's I can so only alive. imagine. She's so alive. I can on only stage. imagine how much I. I can only imagine how much she had to drink while she was doing Martha. Well, to a day, wasn't that that was it was always no. Her, I mean, she that was always her day. saying. That was always her. So well, let's talk about her drinking. Yeah, I mean, there's this amazing period in her life where she was, I forget which play she was doing, that they wouldn't allow any booze backstage at the theater because of her. Mm -hmm. And so she worked with this bartender across across the the street. street. So I succeeded in engineering, uh, with the help of the bartender across the street at the Brown Derby, a removable champagne cork. We whittled off the cork, and then we uh, put the foil on, all that wiring, and the cork was whittled down so it would fit easily on or off the top of the bottle, no, uh, no pop, see? no noise, no nothing. And I would have one of these creations with the help of Charlie, the bartender, and all dolled up, incidentally, with ribbon and a bucket of shaved ice, delivered to the stage door of the Huntington Hartford Theater in L.A. before every performance. I wrote the cards. <laughs> Monday night, all the best, Elaine, Tony Curtis. Tuesday night, have fun, Mickey Rooney. Wednesday matinee, knock him dead, Jimmy Cagney. Wednesday night, give him hell, Judy Garland. Thursday night, thanks for the memory, Bob Hope. Friday night, love and kisses, Liberace. Saturday matinee, you're my favorite, Shirley Temple. Saturday night, Mazel Tov, Cary Grant. <laughs> And and so and so in at liberty, um, a lot of that is oh, this is gonna get me verklempt. A lot of that is her dealing with um, her alcoholism and and dealing with her mm-hmm. professionalism and what she would do. What she would she was like, well, when I'm not at the stage, who cares? That was kind of her ethos. Like, right. who cares? That means right. I could be a full blown alcoholic. When I was on stage, two drinks, and if I had to, you know, one dur- oh, this, one before, this... one during intermission. Right. And Um, this is my favorite quote of the whole thing mm -hmm. where she says two drinks a day on or off stage, two drinks a day, two drinks a day. It doesn't work. (laughs) Not when you want 11. (laughs) And at the end, uh, the thing that really broke me is that she says, um, "It mm. almost all happened without." And isn't me. that? Don't we not want our lives to happen without us? Yeah. And I think when you feel that um, your shit doesn't matter and that uh, you can't do great things, like just think that you at least want to be part of your life <laughs> in some yeah. way, and and, and you want to. Engage, and I, I sometimes go into um, the stratospheres with my head, and I, and I, and I'm, I separate from my body, and I, and and just listening to that really forced me back down to earth, and 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 wanted me to, you know, I think all of us are just feeling so separated, and God, was that not the message I needed right then, babe? Presence to live, to when live. She, when she says, um, "Absent almost always," you know. It's 
it's a real she calls uh at liberty near the end she says what has this all been about then this existential problem in tights And it's really her reclaiming her whole life and standing center stage and demanding to be counted. And none of it is more, um, none of it is personified more than by the ultimate song of that show, which I really can't watch without losing it, which is I'm still here. And in At Liberty, she has the greatest intro for I'm Still Here ever. Not long ago, I was talking to Stephen Sunheim about a song that he wrote called I'm Still Here. And um, in conversation, I mentioned that uh, I had heard women in their 60s sing I'm Still Here. And on several occasions, women in their 50s sing I'm Still Here. Few times, women in their 40s sing I'm Still Here. Where have they been? So I, I told him, not that he asked me, but I told him that I wouldn't touch that song until I was, till I felt justified to sing it. Till I was what? I don't know, 80 years old. I'm still here and I'm 80 years old. But you know, it's such a terrific song and I'm not gonna wait 20 years to sing it. What are you laughing at? <laughs> oh, God. But the performance that really kills me of this song that we I want to play for all of you is um, she sings at uh, Sondheim's 80th birthday party. And there's another great YouTubeable concert, which we will talk about in the Audra episode, too. It's all these leading ladies sitting around a circle, all dressed in red, to sing to Stephen Sondheim. And... Can I say? Can I say? If you're if you're all still with us on our on our um, on our Mount Rushmore uh, divas, Miss Elaine Stritch, this this is it. If if, if you need yeah. to start, start here. Start here. This yeah, will this hook line and fucking place. sink you into your Elaine in, Stritch journey. In the preparation for this, Elaine never made it through the number in the rehearsals, and they were really worried about it. And you watch the other divas kind of like on the edge of their seats. And whereas I marvel at Audra in this concert, you marvel at Audra as a soloist kind of leading the orchestra in like this great way. Like she's a tempo and she's like the leading member of an orchestra. Elaine goes back. Elaine lets that orchestra follow her and vamp. And she takes as much time as she needs. I think it's an eight minute performance of this song. And it's... Again, she personifies just the complete spirit of the actor. She's she's like Puck. She's like this little Puckish imp that just refuses to give up. And she's like a little thing that could be, she's either made of glass or she's made of iron. And you don't know which one it is. She's either going to break in half or she's going to break you. And you never know which way it's going to go. And I just can't get over this before. I've been through Reno, I've been through Beverly Hills, <laughs> and I'm here. <laughs> Reefers and Vino, 
rest cures religion and pills. But I'm here. Been called a pinko. Kami too. Got through its stinko by my pool. I should have gone to an acting school. That seems clear. I'm still, someone said, she's sincere. So I'm here. Black sable one day, next day goes into hot. But I'm here. Top billing Monday, Tuesday you're touring in stock. But I'm here. First, you're another slow-eyed bear. Then someone's mother, then your camp. Then you career from career to career. I'm almost through my memoirs that I did. I've gotten through, hey lady, aren't you who's this? Wow, what a looker you were. Or better yet, sorry, Jesus, I thought you were who's this. Whatever happened to her? Good times and wrong times. I've seen them all, my dear. Still here. Plushville, but sometimes. Sometimes just pretzels and beer. I have run the gamut. A to Z. Three chairs, damn it. Say I got through all the last year, and I'm here. Christ knows, at least I was there. And then what you see behind them are these women honoring her. It's like a sage of goddesses honoring, you know, uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this, this, this priestess of the theater and they're, and they are supporting yeah. her with their energy and with their eyes and they want her to win. And it's just, it's, 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 it's spiritual. I mean, it is fucking spiritual watching this. Like, it's perfect. This is one of the most perfect yeah. things that we get to have. And it's, it's, but yeah, I mean, that's Elaine stretch. <laughs> I, I would say we could do a call, but I feel like this whole episode was a call. How do you feel, babe? Do you want to oh, call? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I can, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I don't think so. I just, you, you know, I've learned yeah. so much from her. I've learned so much from her and she's just, she's like a, a an inspir- she's a, she's a true inspiration to me. And I think about her a lot and that spirit, I think it's something, I also think it's something I identify with in the sense that I share it with her. I'm very, I mean, I was writing down while watching at Liberty, the ways that we're alike. And it's like, there's this kind of indefatigable, 
uh, relentless determination that I really, really share with her. I also wrote down, like, I wear out, uh, she wears out her welcome, much like I do. And, which is true, there's just kind of a, a relentlessness of spirit that we both shared that I, when I saw her for the first time, I recognized it. Like it was a recognition, like you're my person, you know, and she's always um, a bit of a guiding star to me in that way. I, uh, I feel like I know everything about you and I probably do. Um, well, but watching... <laughs> But watching this, I feel like I got to get a little closer to you. Uh, mm-hmm. Learning about her, I feel like I got to. I I saw a lot of you in her, and um, there's a part in in a in shoot me where she comes out in her fur coat uh, out of the hotel Carlisle, and a car just passes by, and she screams, "Asshole!" <laughs> <laughs> and if I could close my eyes, I could literally just see you. <laughs> Switch it in for a late stretch, and I, I think it's so beautiful to be inspired, and uh, you know, and and that's that's that that's that's the best thing we always we always talk about. I always I've, I talk a lot about how when I go to the airport and things are hectic, I start mincing like Bette Midler to get my confidence up to kind of feel control. And watching this, I I I I see so many beautiful things that you, so many great New York beautiful things <laughs> that is you've taken from and informed you. And um, I feel so honored for you sharing this with us and with me. Thank you for letting me live in this world for a little bit. Oh my gosh! Thank you for coming um, up to the Carlisle Hotel. Yeah, and yeah. sitting around and eating English muffins with me. Um, yeah. Uh, thanks everyone for listening and um, join us on the Patreon. We're going to talk about Thirty Rock. And um, if you like this episode, um, rate, review, s- <laughs> subscribe. Um, uh, but, you know, I did it. I've n- I don't think I've ever done it, but I've d- I did it now. I'm hosting. I'm hosting, and I for <laughs> Nick normally likes to get that in within two seconds because people like to turn it off. But but I saved it for the end, so you really do do it now. Do it now for us, please. And. Um, uh, we're just so grateful for Elaine Stritch and everyone who loves her. Send us your Elaine Stritch stories. I promise that they won't make me angry. Um, <laughs> bye. Bye, Broadway babies. <laughs> bye. Perhaps I had a wicked childhood. Perhaps I had a miserable youth. But somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth. For here you are, there you are, loving me. Whether or not you should So somewhere in my youth Or childhood I must have done something Nothing comes from nothing Nothing ever could 
So somewhere in my youth or childhood I must have done something good. Good night and thank you all so very much. <laughs>